In particular, you mentioned Gaza, and I, I taught Palestinians in Gaza for two summers. Um, that was during the Intifada or the uprising in the early 90s. And over those two summers, I spent time talking at length to both the, the Jews and the Israelis, I mean the Jews and the Palestinians, sorry, about, about their ongoing conflict. And there were many people on both sides, really, who, who wanted a peaceful, peaceful land settlements to end the conflict. Um, but what I vividly remember is seeing the fear and hatred in some of their eyes when they talked about the other. And I used to think that if they could only look into each other's eyes yeah. and talk about how they, honestly, how they feel, perhaps there's hope for ending the conflict. Hello there, my fellow sophisticated creatives. Welcome to JCV Art Studio from the dressing room. My name is Joanna, and today I have author Judy Johnson on the podcast. Judy and I are going to talk about her nonfiction, and I say slash fiction book, Thief of Reason, which is about dogmatism. And I will admit I had to look that up exactly i had a rough idea what dogmatism was about was what it meant but i wanted to make sure so before we get into our discussion and i tell you a little bit about judy i want to show my appreciation for all the healthcare professionals out there and each episode from here on i'm going to give a shout out so today's episode we are giving a shout out to nurse ashley Ashley, thank you for all you do. We are behind you. Stay safe and stay healthy. All right. Judy. I just say thank you. Thank yeah. you, Joanna, for acknowledging that. And I want to thank them too, right across the country. It's yeah. a nice touch. Well, I was mentioning that I didn't even, like I have a nurse, Ashley, I know, but I also thought I didn't want to add a last name. So if someone else hears it and they have a uh, someone who they know who's a nurse, Ashley, that thank you extends, let's just say to all the nurse Ashleys out there. Yeah. Yeah. Good thing. Yeah. Good. So Judy is a professor 
Emerita. Am I saying that right? Emerita. Emerita. Okay. Professor Emerita, the psychology department of Mount Royal University, Calgary, Alberta. Her master in science and PhD thesis and her postdoc fellowship at the Ellis Institute in New York City explored the biological, social, and psychological forces that shaped the 13 characteristics of dogmatism's rigid profile. Her nonfiction book, What's So Wrong with Being Right? The Dangerous Nature of Dogmatic Belief, and her novel Thief of Reason, Focus on Dogmatism. She has taught psychology courses to university students, inmates in two correctional institutions, and in and indigenous women on the Sarsi Reserve. In the summers of 1990 and 1991, she also st- taught students in Gaza, Israel. Now she has given numerous presentations on dogmatism to academics in Canadian and international universities, including Cambridge. And she is a recipient of Mount Royal University's Distinguished Teaching Award. Judy, thank you so much for coming on my podcast. I really appreciate this. Well, thank you. And thank you, Joanna, for that lovely introduction. I guess I have to live up to what you've now described. (laughs) Thank you. That was lovely. I kept self-editing myself thinking, oh my gosh, I think I pronounced that wrong. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so please. No, it's fine. Yeah. Okay. Well, please correct me on any of my pronunciations. Okay. So before we talk about Thief of Reason, mm-hmm. I'm curious, you taught psychology courses to university students, inmates, indigenous women, and students in Gaza, Israel. Did any of those teaching sessions have common elements from the students and or did any one of those teaching sessions have any unique challenges? Yeah, I would say that um, perhaps what's common to all of the groups was their range of open versus closed minded thinking. Um, But I think it's pretty safe to say that in unstable or threatening environments, we're all prone to anxiety, anxiety that narrowly restricts our thinking. So in particular, you mentioned Gaza, and I I taught Palestinians in Gaza for two summers. Um, That was during the Intifada or the uprising in the early 90s. And over those two summers, I spent time talking at length to both the the Jews and the Israelis, I mean, the Jews and the Palestinians, sorry, about about their ongoing conflict. And there were many people on both sides, really, who who wanted peaceful peaceful land settlements to end the conflict. Um, But what I vividly remember is seeing the fear and hatred in some of their eyes 
when they talked about the other. And I used to think that if they could only look into each other's eyes and talk about how they, honestly, how they feel, perhaps there's hope for ending the conflict. Oh. But those stereotypes, they are so deeply entrenched that I wonder if they'll, I wonder if and when they'll solve the, the, the conflict over land and peace. I, I wanted to quote um, a, a renowned Canadian philosopher, Charles Taylor, yeah. who said that the biggest challenge of the 21st century will be understanding the other. Okay. You know, and I think that, that, that understanding the, uh, the nature of dogmatism is a, an indispensable first step to achieving um, Taylor's goals. Okay. You, that quote is in the beginning of your book too, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I thought okay. it was powerful. Very yeah. simple. Sometimes the most intelligent things are said so briefly and simply. Yeah. I've always remembered that. Understanding the other is our biggest challenge. Oh, and yeah. I think in order to do that, we need to understand the underlying forces and the influential factors of dogmatism. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. So the thief of reason um, just on a side note, I see you have the book in your in the background there. As a book designer, I love the cover. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I have to say, I have read children's novels involving pirates. I've read picture books about the residential schools in Canada. I am. I have another thriller novel I'm going to be reading, and. I think I was thinking about it the other day that I have got a pretty special podcast because of the variety of books I'm reading and now your book about dogmatism. Okay. And uh, I am just blown away by the, the variety. So how does someone, how does an author write a novel about dogmatism? <laughs> well, that, that is an interesting question. Um, And I suppose, for starters, it helps to have spent uh, more than 25 years, that long, yes, reading and writing about it, and also working with people in therapy and real-life situations who seem to profile the features of dogmatism. And, uh, well, it took a while to sketch the plot of my book. Okay. Um, but I, I started by illustrating the features of dogmatism in, in various characters, um, and then particularly the protagonist and the antagonist, but then weaving in examples of dogmatism in, in a, a political campaigner. Okay. That's always ripe for dogmatic yeah. <laughs> examples. Um, and uh, a university, a dogmatic university student, and uh, also um, a dogmatic believer in conspiracy theories. So I started out by doing that, but it wasn't until chapter 10 that I actually 
gave the word dogmatism. Okay. So I was building up to it. Um, and that when I mentioned that, it, well, the, the word came about um, when Rick, the protagonist, um, visits his psychology professor who, who happens, incidentally, to have a very keen interest in dogmatism. Yeah. And Rick still hasn't conceptualized dogmatism is at the core of the problems of their relationship. But that's the turning point in the novel because Rick begins to question his own, um, his own dogmatic tendencies. And he concludes that near the end of, I think, chapter 10, he concludes that perhaps the apple really doesn't fall far from the tree. Okay. So that gives you a kind of a rough idea. Rick, Rick begins to think about his own dogmatism and then through therapy. Um, and, and actually the therapy sessions, let me say the, um, the more academic writing really only covers about 18 to 20% of the novel, yeah. which is why, as you mentioned, it's kind of a hybrid of, creative literary fiction and nonfiction. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, as, he, as he goes along in therapy, there are other events that happen uh, between him and his father, events that happen to his father that enable them to both. So there's a little redemption even in the father, oh, Richard, God. who goes by Dick. Yeah. And... Richard Jr., who goes by Rick, there is a there's some redemption in their relationship. Okay, so that's about all I'm going to get into. Okay, so I want to pique the, the listeners' interests. Yeah. Well, oh my gosh, the scene, um, the Christmas, the oh, like even the opening scene, Christmas Day, Christmas dinner. Um, <laughs> It's 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 rough. You think it lays the foundation for dogmatic features? It is rough. You're right. Yeah, and just you referred to the mom. I think it's the mom is trying to keep the peace, and I'm just like, oh wow. Okay, okay. So dogmatism strikes me as a very serious problem, and I would say to in today's polarized world. And I'm wondering, first of all, like I said, I looked up what the meaning of dogmatism is. So how would you define dogmatism? Uh, well, first of all, let me see. I can understand why you looked up the word, because I've asked people, well, what does dogmatism mean to you? Or if I said that I thought somebody was fairly dogmatic, what would that indicate? Yeah. And many of them link the concept to religion. Really? Which is... Yeah, uh, not all of them, but many okay. of them do, but they don't link it to politics and the military and education. And But they do, they have kind of a working knowledge of what dogmatism is. Yeah. But to answer your question, um, first of all, um, Oxford defines dogma as a principle or set of principles laid down by an authority as incontrovertibly true the dogmas of faith, for example. Well, over time, and um, with repetition of myths 
and narratives. Um, they shape the dogma of belief systems that if they become widespread and institutionalized, they then are known as ideological systems about which people can be very dogmatic. So when you talk about someone as being an ideologue or ideologically driven, there is a lot of overlap between um, an, an ideologue and a dogmatic person. But ideology refers more to systematized beliefs in public institutions, whereas dogmatism refers to individuals who have the personality trait. But I don't want to go get bogged down too much in all that. Um, it's interesting that Edward O. Wilson, a well-known uh, biologist, defines ideology simply as dogma writ large. Um, okay, so that, that's a formal definition, but there are degrees of dogmatism, and I like to think of mild dogmatism as the adamant voice of, I'm right, you're wrong. Um, and there's a stronger variation, uh, moderate dogmatism, which is the arrogant, uh, condescending voice of, I'm right, you're stupid. Yeah. And then there's the um, malignant, extreme dogmatism. It, it's the voice that rages, I'm right, you're dead. Oh, okay. It's pretty, pretty gripping. Yeah. My psychological definition, which I have fine-tuned and over the years, it attempts to capture the entire suite of, of dogmatism's features. So it's, it's um, Dr. Knowles, a psychology professor in the novel, uh, defines it, which is my definition. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me, Joanna. Yeah. Dogmatism is a personality trait that combines cognitive, emotional and behavior characteristics to personify prejudicial, closed-minded belief systems that are pronounced with rigid, arrogant certainty. So that said, many of us have known a, a, an acquaintance or a relative who clings to their cherished beliefs as, as uh, unquestionable truth even in the face of convincing evidence yeah. that you know that should give should give them reason to pause, yeah. or um, some of us have worked with uh, managers or coworkers who uh, who simply refuse to see things any other way because they think they have nailed truth to the mat, yeah. and sadly, um, are those of us who have had uncompromising intimate partners who think they are the sole expert on a subject, who are uncompromising, yeah. you know, who we love and leave because they're so darn dogmatic. Okay. So I hope that gives you some kind of a, a feeling for, for dogmatism, a portrait. Yeah. Let's, let's make it black and white <laughs> uh, of personal of personal dogmatism. But when it, it moves over into our public institutions, it it um, it jeopardizes, it endangers democracy and uh, human progress. Yeah. 
Yeah. I like to think of it as the bottleneck on freedom's horn of plenty. Oh, geez. Yeah. Oh, wow. Sip of water here. My throat's getting a bit raw. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. All right. So I know when I've started reading your book, Mm -hmm. I can't think, I like my own, like life experiences have come to mind. And so, for example, I listened to podcasts and I heard on one podcast that you can have a doctor write an article that appears, let's say, on Facebook or on the Internet about and I'm not trying to make this about vaccines. Okay. I'm just using this as an example. Okay. But you can have a doctor write an article that appears on Facebook or on the internet. It outlines scientific evidence um, and reasons why to get a vaccine. Yet you can also have a man's uncle from a small town in BC, write an article why not to get the vaccine. And both articles will have the same popularity or wait on the internet. And right now I'm listening to a podcast that has opposite views to what I believe. And there are days when I can't take any more, okay, of what I'm hearing. And I'm, I'll start to get edgy and I'll shut it off um, because I'm getting tired of, of the, of let's say hearing a rant saying that I've swallowed the propaganda. Okay. So this is what I'm hearing, but I refuse to be a person who will only listen to what I want to hear. So I'm wondering, is there any way that we can fix dogmatism in our society or are we too late for that? Well, that's a difficult question to answer. Yeah, that's a loaded question. (laughs) It is, but but those are probably the best place to start. um, I think that education is a a necessary preventive strategy. Um, Beginning beginning with mandatory parenting courses in high school. Okay. because many students will become parents or they'll be aunts and uncles and they can help infants and children learn how to regulate their emotions. This is important. I'll get to that in a moment as to why that's so important. But um, if they can learn at a very early age to regulate their emotions, especially anxiety, that, that helps them relax, open their minds, and think more broad-mindedly about new ideas, okay. emotions. So it's interesting that uh, Greens- Greenspan and Shanker wrote a book called The First Idea. And in that book, I thought what was so interesting was the way they explained how if when a baby, a, a, almost a newborn infant, a very young infant, starts is crying really upset if a parent pats baby you know and says something like they're there sweetums mommy's here yeah it's okay mommy's here baby takes a deep breath and pauses 
And in that important pause, the baby's first idea, that's why they call the book the first idea. The baby's first idea is, I don't have to engage in this, what Greenspan calls global screeching. Okay. Okay. I, I can, and of course they don't articulate it like this, but in that pause, they learn that they can calm themselves down. Okay. And a, a tense, very tense or anxious caregivers, of course, they, they don't do that. And they don't realize how their own anxiety and tension, it, it seems common sense, but they, a lot of people don't realize how tense they are in the first place. You ask them to relax their muscles. And, yeah. <laughs> oh. yeah. So, and, and, and this is fairly common in a new mother. You know, she might be a bit tense. She might be a bit anxiety prone for various reasons. And baby, it's hard to calm baby. Okay. And that intensifies, I mean, they, they may have a biological predisposition mm-hmm. for higher levels of the neurotransmitters that regulate anxiety or that create anxiety, lower levels of those that regulate it, than average people. And they're born with a disadvantage. Okay. You know? So if they're born into a family of parents who are anxious and authoritarian and a cultural system that's also authoritarianism, you can see how to feel safe, they narrow their thinking. Right, yeah. So, I, I mean, I've just sort of rolled it up here rather quickly. Yeah. Um, but to answer your question, going back to your question yeah. about education and parenting courses in schools, um, I also think that early, early child care programs should include courses that help child care workers teach young children, how to regulate their emotions. Again, that's very important. And how to, how to reward kids for thinking independently, for questioning them, okay. you know, for learning how to engage their curious minds, because we all have, are born with the intellectual capacity for curiosity. Yeah. So help them engage that curiosity. It sounds straightforward, and I'm sure there are programs and there are school systems that do incorporate some of these ideas in their curriculum. But I I want to emphasize it here because I think it's so important. And I also think that through K-12, all throughout, students can learn effective, respectful social communication skills. Again, that may be taught, and likely increasingly so, I hope so, is the case. Um, But if they learn those skills, and if they also learn how their thoughts shape their emotions, their beliefs, and behaviors, they can gain more self-awareness, more self-awareness. Okay. And it, I mean, that's a rather long-winded answer, Joanna, but... I am a strong believer that um, educational systems from K-12 through university should focus on the development of social skills, psychological skills, social, cognitive, emotional, yeah. as much as academic skills. Okay. You know, because what's, what's more important than um, our relationships, social relationships? Yeah, yeah. Is it more important to be absolutely right 
or to have good relationships. Oh, yeah. Um, so, um, yeah. So there's a lot that I think we could do in terms of education that we we may not be doing. Okay. And that could ward off some of the uh, predispositions for narrow thinking, closed-minded thinking okay. in childhood and adolescence. Okay, that that's good. I'm fascinated here. I'm just fascinated. Okay, that's good. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm just thinking about this other podcast. I I won't give up on it. I will. I will. I will think of the, your example of the baby, right? And just yeah, breathe. And just okay. Okay. It's so pause. yeah, important learning in that first baby's pause. You can probably picture in your mind a newborn baby a mo- who's crying and the mother who's calm and the baby <gasps> takes a yeah. breath and pauses. Might yeah. start crying again, but that's the first idea according to Greenspan and Shanker. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, your book, I, I, mean, I know, <laughs> let's get your focus back on your book because um, yeah. um, I really am enjoying how you write. Okay, so as we've mentioned, Thief of Reason, it's this unique blend of fiction and nonfiction. And I think you are educating through storytelling, which I absolutely love. Okay, so how would you describe your book's genre? I would describe it very much as you just did, as 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 a a hybrid of literary fiction that exposes the nonfiction elements of dogmatism. Yeah, that's about eighteen um, percent of the overall content. Um, my challenge in 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 writing the book was creating characters who illustrate dogmatism's features and the underlying causal influences, as well as teach Rick about dogmatism through the two office visits with his psychology professor, who, and this is where I really had to work hard at making sure he doesn't come across as preachy or overly academic about dogmatism. And above all, who isn't dogmatic about dogmatism? <laughs> you know, yeah. you couldn't iron the wrinkles out of that irony. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, so is it all right? Is it all right if I read a few paragraphs um, to our listeners so they understand that this is a work of fiction with characters? Sure, I'd okay. like that. Okay, go for it. Okay, because I think we've all have had, whether it be Christmas, Thanksgiving, we've all had those dinners, <laughs> those holiday dinners, where things just don't go quite as planned. Okay. And uh, this is after, as you mentioned in the book, the incident, okay, at, at Christmas dinner. And, and this is Rick. Okay. So you write, as if to calm his racing heart, Rick pressed one hand against his chest and turned toward his father who glared at him. Rick glared back. I've been stretched too far for too long. I appreciate my free rent and working part-time for you and Uncle Harry, 
but geez, dad, I'm tired of feeling like an outsider looking in, like I don't belong in my own family. Tired of not being able to state my views without coming under your almighty wrath. Why does it have to be this way, especially now in front of everyone at Christmas, for Christ's sakes? So that was one paragraph. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then just a little further. So Rick's by himself. And, and you write, Rick traced the same old carpet circles he trampled on earlier and continued his quest for answers. How many sons ruined today's family dinner? Why am I so bent on proving dad wrong? Why so obstinate? Can't get out of my own way. Should go upstairs and apologize. He mulled that idea over, then said aloud, can't, won't putting his hands together and a sloppy prayer to the God he didn't believe in, he begged. It's been a long time, but please, God, if there's any chance you're out there, help me and dad find a way to heal our heart. Okay. I really do enjoy your, like, just, you have these gems, have these gems in your writing. So our listeners understand more. Can you tell us a bit about the main characters, Dick Wright and his his bright 28-year-old son, Rick Wright? Sure, as you as you just as you just read yeah. about the gripping scene and the rising levels of tension uh, over the dinner table. Um, those those uh, polarized viewpoints, they spark a very heated argument between an intolerant uh, dogmatic father. Dick, who's the antagonist, and his son Rick, um, and and it mirrors the polarized conversations that are happening right now across the world. You know, around dinner tables, uh, in boardrooms, uh, and on social media platforms. So anyway, later that evening, after after that uh, heated argument at the dinner table. Rick, who leaves the dinner table early because he, he's too he's worried that he's going to ruin the whole dinner for his aunt and uncle and sister and brother-in-law. Later that evening, father and son have their first physical brawl. And um, it, it upsets Rick so much that he gets so physically um, brutal. This is a very brutal fight that they get in, in the basement, in Rick's um, basement suite. It bothers Rick so much that he does something he never thought possible. He books an appointment with a therapist. And, And in that very first session, he says, I'll be up front. I didn't come here to talk about me. I came for professional advice about my father, because unless I figure out how to get along with him, I'll lose my free rent and part-time job with his company. And he needs that so that he can finish his fourth year of university. Well, little does Rick know that inadvertently along the way in therapy, he'll learn more about himself and the role he plays in his fractured relationship with his father. Yeah. 
And also, he'll learn how to repair his damaged relationship with the new love of his life. Yeah. Who, who, she's a devout Catholic. Yeah. Um, unlike Rick, who's agnostic or atheist somewhere in there. He's certainly very opposed to the Catholic Church. Yeah. And they have a terrible argument about that. Um, his new girlfriend is also a political candidate. Well, this is right for the dogmatic milk. Yeah. And uh, she's she's running in an upcoming election and Rick helps her door knock. Oh. And they and in those a couple of those scenes, uh, they provide an opportunity to illustrate a dogmatic candidate and a very open minded, inclusive political candidate. Um, so as the story unfolds in, and Rick has two, two office visits with his psych professor, talks, who, who talks about dogmatism and helps Rick understand how he might deal with dogmatic people. Um, various twists and turns occur um, that help him understand his father, hurt his, heal his hurtful relationship with his dad and his relationship with Liv. His new, his new girlfriend. Um, so he learns about that, and and then there are various events that even intensify the opportunity for him to apply his new learning, okay. which he finds very exciting. And the beauty of Rick, I mean, I think people will start off disliking him, but feeling a bit sorry for him, they'll have some empathy for him. Yeah. But as the book, as the story unfolds, I hope that they'll gain a greater understanding, not only about dogmatism, but about what it's like for a, a bright person. And you don't have to be all that bright, but a good intelligence who is not afraid to journey inward and gain some personal insight about their own, their own weaknesses, Yeah, which Rick is quite capable of doing. Yeah. I was telling my daughter last night about your book, and uh, I I don't believe we cover this scene, and I don't want to give it to. Oh yes, we do. Okay, so I'm not going to say anything more. Do we? Yeah. Okay, I'm not going to say anything more. But I was talking to my daughter about your scene, which we will get into, and uh, it was an eye opener. And when you mentioned about that physical fight, I know when I was reading it, I was thinking, okay, okay. Like in my own head, I'm like, okay, Rick. Okay, Rick. Like, like, like just oh, like, I'm, I almost wanted to say, let's bring back that anger, Rick, when they have that first physical altercation, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. In the therapy session, let's bring back that anger or. No, when he, when, when him and his dad actually have that fight. Oh, oh okay. right. Oh. And yeah. yeah. And I was just like, okay reel it in Rick because like I thought oh my god this guy's really mad <laughs> and really angry right oh uh, so are you the therapist Dr. Gray in the book <laughs> well hmm. <laughs> I suppose you know that that over the years um I've I've internal teaching about therapy being a therapist I have internalized the role of a therapist uh, with people 
when even when I meet people, I try I I'm very cautious of not sounding like a psychologist. Oh. I like to think I don't. No, you don't. But, but for the purposes of the book, I had to um I had to draw from my own experience. Yeah. You know, and so that I could craft the dialogue between Rick and his therapist, especially, yeah. and also between Rick and his psychology professor. Yeah. In a way, uh, well, it was very challenging, I must say, but it was also fun. Yeah. It was rewarding. It yeah. kept me at this computer for hours at a time. And I'd say, oh, yeah, but a good therapist wouldn't say that. No. Yeah. Yeah. This is where I should say and, you know, so, yes, to answer your question, I I am inevitably the therapist and the psych prof <laughs> in the scenes where Rick learns about dogmatism. Well, what's neat is it's Rick's point of view of the therapist. Like it's it's for me, like I say, I mentioned you have gems in this book because Rick's mentioning how the therapist is sitting there and her her foot is doing the invisible circles you know as he's talking and I saw that and I really like that in writing you know where where you see people's mannerisms okay yeah Yeah. and that uh, that was probably even more of a challenge for me because um, I had not written in fact I I didn't even read much fiction before I decided to write the novel I read nonfiction. yeah so I started reading about how you write literary fiction, which was fascinating. And the descriptions, I mean, this is not not a book of classic literature, obviously. It is really meant to, well, to satisfy my need to get people talking about dogmatism, but more importantly, to get readers to think about dogmatism and the role it might play in their own lives. Yeah. So, uh, and that was certainly challenging to do the descriptive part. It's interesting. You read deep. You read <laughs> deeply, Joanna, when you, you visualize the therapist. Uh, because I actually had to stop and think of myself. Okay, what might I be doing? Well, yeah. I might be twirling my foot. You know? yeah. yeah. It's fun, isn't it? It is. Yeah. No, you, you, you write yourself, don't you? Yes. Yes, I do. Yeah. And it's those human elements that I think are, are gems. And you have. Yeah. Okay. So speaking of your writing style, mm-hmm. I'd like to, this line made me chuckle. If I could, uh, if I can read another s- snippet of your, of, from your book. Sure. Okay. Mm-hmm. So Rick is in Dr. Gray's office and he says, like, uh, they're ju- it's like, they're just starting to meet and, and talk and she's asking questions and he's talking. And so then he says, I get to do the heavy lifting, Rick sighed, then noticed a drooping peace lily in the corner of the room, needs watering, or an antidepressant, and that made me laugh, okay, because I saw the flower just go, (laughs) I thought, oh, the poor flower needs an antidepressant, (laughs) right, so, yeah, is there any aspect of your writing that you really enjoy or you feel is a strength? Well, in this novel, uh, unlike a nonfiction book, which is quite different to write, in this novel, uh, writing the dialogue was 
so enjoyable. That's probably why I die. the book consists of probably 80 to 85% dialogue. Okay. Um, because somehow it writing dialogue allowed me to get into the ongoing thoughts and feelings of the characters in a way that simply describing them through literary, you know, literary description doesn't. Yeah. For me, it worked. Yeah. For others, it might not. <coughs> Pardon me. And some of the readers might find it too heavy on dialogue. Like, let's get some more background and description. Well, fair enough. You know, there's yeah. people have different tastes in what they read and, and what they enjoy. Um, but I've been thinking since I since the book was published, that maybe I should try my hand, first of all, at reading books about how you write screenplays, <laughs> but try my hand at writing a screenplay and just, you know, put, put it full of dialogue with characters who are dogmatic, not have any teaching in it at all about dogmatism. Yeah. Maybe somebody casually mentions it, yeah. but that's all. Yeah. So, you know, there's always so many different directions you can go in. And uh, maybe you have found too that when you write something and it's you're finished writing it and it's published, you look at it again and think, oh my, I could have come at it from a different angle. Maybe it would have been more effective if I'd have just left that out. Yeah. You know? But that's the joy. And since I'm retired now, it is pure joy and luxury of having the time and being able to just get up in the morning, have my coffee and let her rip. Yeah, yeah, good, good, yeah. good. So dialogue was the key that I, dialogue was what I really enjoyed most. I don't know if it's my strength, but it it was what I enjoyed. Well, it is great. Um, and yeah. I have a couple more passages. And for example, a Dr. Gray says to Rick, problem is understanding's difficult, judgment's easy mm -hmm. and and I'm just I'm I'm thinking and I'm like why is understanding another point of view difficult is it because we have to open up ourselves to the idea that maybe our beliefs are wrong mm -hmm. yeah yes yes I think you've hit upon a major a major component of dogmatism um, and the dogmatic people find it hard to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Okay. No, that's so simple. In many yeah. cases, it's over and done with. Okay. But they don't apologize because to apologize means that they're wrong. Yeah. And being wrong threatens too much need. Their need to be absolutely right to be seen as knowledgeable okay so the foundation of dogmatism is is really an intolerance of ambiguity okay which, which is defined as um, the tendency to perceive ambiguous informations and situations as sources of threat okay and how we cope with ambiguous uh, information shapes our ongoing perceptions and beliefs so dogmatic people they prematurely close their minds about new ideas not so much because of 
psychological inertia or because they lack intelligence. But they close their minds to another point of view, as, as you've asked, because uh, first of all, closing their minds removes ambiguity and it reduces their anxiety of not knowing, okay. of being judged wrong or intelligent you know, or stupid. Yeah. Being right at all costs satisfies their need for safety and their need for certainty. Okay. That's why they, it's hard for them to take on another point of view. Okay. Yeah, because the, the thought fear popped into my head when I when you when you were explaining that. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But okay. I think many of us find it difficult to accept that sometimes we don't know. Yeah. Know? And and we don't have to know. Yeah. Dogmatism is just a matter of degree here. Okay. 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 Well, I would like to read another passage. And this is the passage I was telling my daughter last night. All right. Okay. And uh, she's, she's a nurse and she is dealing um, with some pretty heavy issues. Um, and, and, and the situation she's at. So we, we usually have weekly conversations and she really appreciated this passage. I, I had to tell her and I, it's, it says a lot. Okay. So, and, and it's dialogue, it's dialogue. Okay. Here, the, and then this is Rick. And, and again, another little, another gem is in here. When, when, as soon as I say, yeah, okay, here we go. Okay. Here I am wanting to figure out how to confront dad's lizard logic without getting enraged. But you think I should simply walk away. And then Dr. Gray says, it's your father's turf, his rules. Perhaps you fulfill two of his needs. First, you give him permission to draw you into a losing competition. Second, you allow him to make you angry initially at him, then at yourself. That, that was a, oh, okay. Rick pondered the idea. Are you saying I let him control me? Let him make me angry? And then it was then this line. Does he have a loaded gun to your head? And I just... I'm like, okay, okay. Like that is powerful dialogue, Judy. Um, well, <laughs> thank you. I think I think the thief of reason. You were talking about mandatory, you know, parenting. I mm -hmm. think the thief of reason should be required pandemic reading. Okay, <laughs> so maybe we're not so edgy or angry. Um, like I am getting, I, I am getting the physical book. I am going to be ordering that as soon <laughs> as our podcast is over. Cause I am, I'm old school. I like the, I like the paper. I like the book. Right. Um, now I want to know. Okay. So like I said, I want to buy your book because I want to know what happens to Rick. And I want to learn about my own impatience and irritability. And I have noticed that. I have noticed my um, anxiety and my, I'll say, edginess. And I talked with an old friend of mine who is a retired nurse, and she has said the same thing. She says she's noticed in herself 
there's this edginess. And she goes, and so she started going back to the gym and she goes, cause I, I haven't been being able to just kind of, like you said earlier, relax, just right. Mm-hmm. So what are you hoping your book will do for people reading it? I hope it will do for them what it is obviously doing for you. Okay. <laughs> you are a person who is, is comfortable, uh, challenged, uh, maybe even a bit excited yeah. <clears throat> about gaining personal insight. Yeah. You value a personal journey yeah. into yourself so that you can become a better person. Yeah. And that's what I hope. <clears throat> oh, pardon me. We're going to have to close because it's also getting dark. Yeah. In, in Calgary. Um, okay. But mainly, I hope that the book will give readers in the sanctuary of their own minds um, personal insight yeah. that will enrich their own relationships. Okay. Wow. That would be yeah. wonderful if for yeah. even a few people. Yeah. <laughs> because writing it helped clarify in my own mind how I can be a little too entrenched with my cherished beliefs. Okay. It's a constant day-to-day awareness. It doesn't have to drag you down, you know, endlessly searching for or doing some kind of psychoanalysis. I'm not suggesting that. But every once in a while, I ask myself, what was my real motive for saying that? Okay. No, those kinds of questions. Would you like some? I was going to say, if you want to take some water, yeah. I'll have some coffee. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. So winding up here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So just fun, last question. Um, what's next, Judy? Um, I hope you'll be, you'll continue writing. Well, have you heard of or seen this very little book? It's written by Dr. Uh, Harry Frankfurt. Professor Emeritus in the philosophy department at Princeton University. (laughs) I should mute myself when I cough. Anyway, this book is called On Bullshit. (laughs) The New York Times bestseller has been, it's now at least 10 years old. I should have checked the date of publication. Anyway, New York Times bestseller for many months. Yeah. And I thought, well, what if I wrote a short primer on dogmatism? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be fun. Yeah. So I might do that. And I might do a dog blog. Okay. You know, on my website, I might add a dog blog. I have to, you know, I've got a few irons in the fire that that will keep me going for a while anyway. Okay. And, and your website is? So if people want to find you on the internet and social media? It's real simple, www.dogmatism.ca. Okay. And on the website, they can download a free sample of chapter one. Okay. And it also gives uh, my contact information and where to buy the book, whether in soft cover or ebook and yeah. other information. So, okay. Dogmatism.ca. Okay. Judy, thank you. This has been fascinating. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Joanna. I just, I, I've really enjoyed our time together. Oh, good, good. Okay, Judy. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.